So hello and welcome to the Axiom Insights Learning and Development Podcast. I'm Scott Rutherford. This podcast series explores topics around driving organizational performance through learning. And today we're focusing on workforce education in healthcare. And I couldn't be happier to have three industry experts with me to talk about that. I'll introduce you each uh, very briefly, but if you could tell me a little bit more about your background. Uh, Hillary Miller, you're the president or vice president and chief learning officer at Penn State Health. Uh, tell me a little about your role. Sure. So I, it's an inaugural role that didn't exist before in a growing healthcare system. And so I have key responsibilities for leaning, leading learning strategy, workforce development, and organizational development consulting. So it's a real pleasure and honor to be here. Thank you. Thank you, Hillary. Jeffrey Roach, you're the Director of Workforce Development North America at Stevens Health and Years. And I should note, I believe you're the co-host of a Holistic Leadership, the Future of Work in Education and Healthcare podcast. So uh, nice to have another podcaster on. Tell me a little about your role at Siemens Health and Ears. Yeah, thank you, Scott. And, and obviously wonderful to be here with you and, and with Hillary and Dr. Mitchell as well. Um, obviously, uh, my role at Siemens, uh, like Hillary, is also inaugural. It's really to think about how do we partner with hospitals and healthcare systems around learning and development and how do we build the next sustainable healthcare workforce. Great. Jeffrey, great to, great to have you on. And Dr. Lamada Mitchell is Chief Learning Officer at Advent Health. And uh, I, I looked it up because I wasn't familiar with your organization. So uh, uh, as far as I was able to find out, I, I know you're a nonprofit healthcare system in Florida with 92,000 employees. Is that right? Yes. Actually, we're at 93,000 as I speak. Yes. So we keep wow. going. So what's your, what's your, describe your role and how long have you been there? So my role is similar to Hillary's and um, like hers, it's a new role for the organization. So as chief learning officer, I oversee learning strategy and learning opportunities for the 93,000 team members that we have. And it's really uh, comes out of the strategic plan of wanting Advent Health to become a dynamic learning community. Wonderful. Well, so let me start off the, the conversation uh, fairly broadly, because my understanding, and I'm not, I don't work in healthcare, I work in learning and development, and I have, have for, for uh, some years, but um, my experience with the healthcare industry is primarily as a consumer. Um, but I think everybody who, who has been, <laughs> who has lived through the past five years is aware of the pressures that the healthcare sector and the industry have faced. So, um, my understanding is if we were to put ourselves back in a 2019 pre-COVID mindset is that there were some pressures on workforce and staffing in healthcare that were unique to the sector even before COVID. And so I, I was wondering if, if we could just have a conversation about, well, what's been the experience of, of living through the, the pandemic period and the perhaps additional pressures, at least that's my perception, that that put on on healthcare staffing and, and, and how have you experienced the past four or five years and, and uh, uh, how, how is today's situation different than where we, I hate to say started off, but where we were before the pandemic? I have a lot to offer on this and I'm sure <laughs> my colleagues do here too. I, you know, for me and you can pull up research that highlights this too. In healthcare, these were things that have we've known. We've known that we were going to have workforce shortages. Uh, we knew that higher ed institutions, you know, if we don't have enough faculty, 
to teach the members because these are highly credentialed roles oftentimes, which requires, you know, clinical externships. And then you have your more entry-level roles, which are critical, like a medical assistant that, that relieve the administrative uh, burden off of your uh, higher credentialed individuals, all very, very important. And so when I think about, you know, what happened with the pandemic, it put a magnifying glass on a problem that was already there. And then on top of it, it stress tested every industry. I mean, healthcare was not the only recipient of that um, and put us almost into like a war zone type situation where, you know, folks are, are not, we're not equipped for volumes of that magnitude, the severity of the situation, the mental health impact. And we learned so many things from that in a really, really hard way. But in my mind, these problems were already things that we knew. I mean, we had statistics already telling us that in rural, in rural health centers, um, internal medicine was going to have a severe shortage in 2030. And so it, these were things that were known. It is more of what our organization's doing to react to that now because these pipelines take time to fill. And so you have to start that work now, knowing that this is a potential in the future. So... I'd agree with Hillary about the research. Um, as the pandemic was happening, I was still in higher education. I had not joined this healthcare company at that point. And what we saw from that perspective was the effect of the birth death. So we have fewer coming into those programs. They would look at it and they would evaluate the program based on the length of time it would take them to get their qualifications and get turned you know get turned off by that but we realized in higher education that we did not do a good job of sitting at the table with the employers to talk about this problem that was in front of us we went off into our silos thinking that we had the answer to the question and then you know did not bring it back to the to the employers now that I'm in healthcare, I joined this organization in 2022. What we're seeing is the burnout. We're seeing that the pipeline is not as robust as we thought it was because we didn't take into equation the decline in enrollment in these programs. So not having sufficient people coming out qualified to step into this role. But we also didn't put into place a robust support system to help with the burnout of those that were on the front lines during the pandemic and are still at the front lines post-pandemic. Right, and Jeffrey? Yeah, you know, it, it's really interesting. One of the best phrases that I've heard from a colleague about a year ago to describe healthcare was, uh, we don't have pathways in healthcare. We literally have chutes and ladders. And you know, these two individuals here have been uh, true pioneers in the work that they've led at their healthcare systems to change that. But but we don't have that systemically across the board, Scott, right? I mean, you know, I come to this as, as the son of a community college graduate, son of a nurse, uh, got into a healthcare system at a young age, grew and had leaders that mentored and coached me into becoming the leader that I am today. That story is not real for a lot of people in healthcare. And it pains me when I say that because it's the true, authentic reality. But what we have to really think about is how do we change that? And I think when we look at learning and development, what's clear is that systems that intentionally 
and authentically invest in a chief learning officer and a learning and development team and give them the resources that are critical, that's the key. They've got to embed resources there and they've got to leverage them as a trusted learning advisor, meaning instead of being transactional, let them be transformational. You will see a change. I think healthcare, and obviously, you know, Hillary and Dr. Mitchell can can give their thoughts on this. I think healthcare is an industry that's been a bit slower than other industries in really leveraging that. And so it's incredibly important that for all the executives that will hear this discussion, that they actually invest in these areas. It will not just help people, it will change lives when done correctly. And the, you're talking about uh, making an investment and, in, in, you know, I, I, I don't want to treat uh, the workforce in healthcare monolithically. I realize that we probably need to break it down into at least a few subsectors. But when you're talking about physicians, you know, nursing professionals, people who require a, a lot of education and training to, to, to take those roles, the, the path is long. We're many years. Uh, and I think everyone's familiar with that. So, so how do you manage, you know, the, 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 forecast shortages of physicians and, 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 and uh, RNs and certified nursing assistants and those, those uh, I don't know, call them credentialed roles. Um, is, and, and, you know, and, I, and I made myself a quick list of just trying to understand who I thought might be in the picture because I think, you know, I, I mean, I have visibility to, you know, there's the lab, tech, lab technicians, but also HR, finance, operations, all the people who keep the lights on in the buildings. Each one of them Am I, am I inferring correctly, needs a different sort of defined intake pathway and in, in another ladder, maybe, Jeffrey, to use your analogy? Yeah, I mean, obviously, this is where also accreditors come in and licensing boards come in. And I will say, Scott, I think healthcare is the most regulated industry generally across the board. And to, you know, to both Hillary and Dr. Mitchell's point, we know what's required today in most of those cases. There have been certain areas like nursing where they have been successful to actually get accreditors to be okay with virtual reality and simulation instead of 100% clinical placement. But in like imaging, for example, if you're a community college, which produce most of our technologists, they still have to do 100% clinical placement over 1,400 hours of in-person clinical placement. But here's where it gets challenging. And Hillary and Dr. Mitchell could tell you. Clinical placements are so tough to get right now because of the workforce challenges and a whole host of other reasons. And so this is really where, in my view, academia and healthcare have to come together and they have to go back to the accreditors and to the licensing boards diplomatically and realistically and say, hey, this is the challenges we're dealing with today. And then go forward to Hillary's point about the data. The data is scary. I don't think anybody should sit there and sugarcoat it, but I think some do still today. But 2027 is coming, and that's the that's uh, the true reality. And then you have 2030, as Hillary said. But every couple next years, we are really in a challenging situation. And so I think the only way to address this is through true transformational partnership between industry, academia, and all the other entities. This is an ecosystem, and I think we've always faltered when we don't leverage the ecosystem. Hmm. That's a really interesting point. And I, there's a lot of levers. So thinking that there's this concrete pathway for any one of these roles is just, in my mind, not a great way to look at it, right? It's, it's not this ladder of I've got to achieve these activities. You have to look at the breadth of transferable skills. So I think about veteran populations. 
more often than not, veterans coming out of service have these transferable skills, but because the way historically job descriptions have been written, we have not accounted for that. It's It has to look like this thing. So that being removed and a field medic, perfect entry level into medical assisting and probably very close to being able to move into a nursing could probably do an EMT role pretty quickly. And there are things that you have to do with that, but we look at this having to be in the same structure as what we've had academically so long, and people are thinking that's a reduction in quality. It's an evolution of the skill set. And so in my mind, it's, hey, you're not sure you want to work in healthcare yet? Come be a patient care tech part-time. Come work on the revenue cycle side as a coder part-time, as a biller. And so one of the bigger things that we forget about, it doesn't matter if you have tuition reimbursement in an institution, a lot of people cannot afford to pay that up front. And so you have to rethink and reshape the access barriers that are preventing people from going doing that. When we go and talk with entry-level employees, it's not that they don't want to grow. They say, I don't think I can do that because I, I financially am having to choose between my light bill and my travel and my childcare. And so we have not made that easy for people to evolve into those roles. I actually don't think we have a shortage of people. We have created limitations for access points for them to get into it. And two, in a healthcare system, I love that you called this out, Jeffrey and um, Scott, is that there are so many other roles that require, you know, the, the health care system to be able to run. And more often than not, we're always talking about the clinical and clinical is critically important. But if we don't have folks who are in environmental services, we don't have folks to keep our patients healthy and safe uh, by keeping things clean. We can't move somebody from the ED into an inpatient bed because of that. So there are all these different levers within a healthcare system that if you don't think about how all of those things interact and Take a look at your geographic region. I mean, in a rural healthcare system area like we have, most of our workers outside of the highly, highly trained uh, residents and some other folks who'd be moving in to be tied to our academic institutions for training are from the local area. Mm -hmm. And so you have to know your markets and your regions to tap into those unique geographic uh, requirements, the funding sources, all of those things. So I don't see it as a, a path. It is it is multiple levers that you have to show people this is what this could look like and guess what you get to pick. And then let us make sure that we're removing financial barriers for you to even be able to entry, enter into that. I think one of the other pieces that's missing is the opportunity to either upskill or reskill. As you said, you have someone that's in one particular area of healthcare, but they have the skills that can be developed to step into another role, but we don't make that easily accessible for them. And sometimes our approach to the resources for upskilling or reskilling has gone backwards and you have to sit in the classroom. You have to be pulled away from the job that you do, sit in the classroom, and then you, the individual, has got to make the connecting dots between what you're learning, the role that you're in, and how it can take you to the next place, which is outdated to me. So I think that organizations, particularly healthcare, that have looked at their job descriptions and have zoned in on what are the skills they're looking for, 
you're absolutely right, Hillary. They have found that it isn't a shortage of people. We have the people there. We just need to make it accessible for them to move into the role that their skills align the best with. Right. And then yeah, move you know, toward think- a focus on uh, you know understanding and, and a more I think flexible skills assessment doesn't just affect healthcare. Obviously, I think it's it's uh, uh, you know coming to an inflection point from the sound of this discussion. But uh, I know, uh, you know I'm in physically located in the Philadelphia area, and the governor in uh, Pennsylvania recently signed legislation which effectively opened up state hiring um, uh, uh, beyond people with a bachelor's degree to allow for some of this skills-based hiring. Are those the sort of changes that are needed to, to open the door? What are the barriers that you're seeing to, to really embracing uh, a focus on skills within healthcare? Scott, I can I can give you one, and it and it's a tangible one that I think it, it just paints the picture right. Apprenticeships is a great example in healthcare. There's a movement here in the United States to change the way we currently look at uh, the current system and say why don't we have an apprenticeship degree? Nothing changes in this. Still of highest quality, an individual would work on the job. To Hillary's point, they would could work even as a food service worker. They could be in a program invested in by the healthcare system to become a technologist, to become a phlebotomist, and be learning and earning on the job. Now, inevitably, some of the feedback that people will say, well, oh, the accrediting bodies are not going to go for that. They're not going to go for that. And so that's the reality, right? Like, here's the challenge to what Hillary said, right? Hillary's right. You cannot just assume that this is about pathways. But the Hillary's exact model, why apprenticeships are important, is you can bring more equity into the system when somebody actually has a job and is not having to pay for that expensive education. Dr. Mitchell came from you know, the community college sector, but the reality of it is, is there are still people who want to enter healthcare today, but they can't even afford a community college. And in the structure today, unless we're going to provide support for them, they will never be able to become part of our organization's because they have to get licensed. They have to first get that degree. They then have to get licensed. And so why not provide that on the job, learn on the job model that's different? I know it sounds different, but other industries have done it very, very well. And I think we can in healthcare too. Yeah. And then that's not just a healthcare barrier. I'll, I'll, I'll share a little of my experience, which may be relevant here, because for a number of years, I was with the continuing education unit at the University of California, Irvine, and uh, it was certificate programs. So so what they call non, non-credit bearing certificate programs. But typically, these are learning programs that are used for folks who are looking to move up in a, in a particular career path or to change career path. But the, the challenge that I faced in that role, and I think that uh, a lot of uh, fee-based learning still faces for the, for the, for the learner, is the uncertainty. And, and I think that, Jeffrey, this kind of gets to where you're going, where, you know, am I going to be able to justify putting time and money toward learning, whether, you know, a skills-based certificate or whatever that looks like, um, without some assurance that, that I'm going to earn more or earn something to pay it off. Mm, I, so something that's really fascinating to me, industry agnostic, is goes back to your original comment when we were talking about investment or expense. There's fiscal 
expenses with this. There is hard green dollars, right, that people are looking at. And it's, we have to reshape that, number one, because we have historically just not looked at all the other things that impact somebody's life. We've, we for such a long time, because this is from the industrial area era, and most companies are still very much structured that way, of I give you a job, you owe me your loyalty, it has to look like this. And, you know, not to the fault of any organizations, but that's where the pandemic kind of rushed, ordered some of the stuff that should have been managed much, much earlier, but it kind of forced a a great lens and view on this of that, the way that we're all operating. And nobody has a playbook for this, by the way. That's where companies get some grace because we all kind of got chucked into it, healthcare predominantly because we're talking about life and death situations. But when you're thinking about people in general, it's an evolution and it's that you have to have some level of risk to be able to make change. And so it's stress testing, where are we okay to take this risk? But also companies are, are really hurting right now, right? There's a lot more choice for patients. Awesome. Much harder for healthcare systems. You're seeing a combination now in mergers and acquisitions of a lot of healthcare systems because they simply cannot survive on their own because the competition is so fierce. So what I'm hoping for, just as a, a learning leader, is that we start to see, yes, we understand we're in competition in the marketplace and there is a business model and a revenue cycle around this, but that if we started competing together, mm-hmm. we have enough people in our populations to fill all of our roles. And we are looking at that. I, I mean, I'm looking for more collaborative efforts and councils that are saying, hey, we all have the same problem recognizing that I need to be able to fill this, but if we're working against each other, we're actually making it harder for the people that we're actually trying to get into these job roles. And it's just reshaping the thinking completely. The other thing that I'm incredibly passionate about is that there's a lot of great government things that we should be doing legislatively. And that's where the advocacy of roles, like what we all have, that's where I'm spending my time is in the legislation because that's the thing that's going to allow for the funding. And we're using the funding to be a barrier rather than piloting and testing things. So we know we can't solve for this overnight, but stress test, try some things out, be okay with having a certain threshold for risk to see what's going to work for your organization. I like that idea of failing forward. I think the other challenge too, though, is sometimes helping others see that learning is not just a function, but it's a value and it adds value. You know, learning is always regarded as that cost center, it's money going out, can't show the RRI. But when you have got an organization of people who have taken the autonomy for their own learning and they're engaged in critical thinking and then they become problem solvers then they become partners as to how can we look at this thing in front of us as an opportunity to grow and change rather than an obstacle. But Hillary, I like your idea about thinking on the legislative part, what what do we need to share with them so they understand the importance of this and that that stress testing, that, that resonates with me. 
Well, it's, it's engaging also, and this gets back to uh, Jeffrey, the phrase you used, which I know, I, well, you used the phrase trusted learning advisor, which I, I interviewed uh, Dr. Keith Keating, the author of the book of that title for a previous episode of this podcast. But in the context of this discussion, I think, you know, in, in Hillary, this, 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 I think it's to uh, the picture you may have been trying to, to describe, which is when we're talking about learning in the context of the future state of an organization and an industry, we have to have executive level voice and buy-in and, 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 and build, build trust that we are a, we learning are a strategic lever in the future of the industry and the, the future of the institution. So not just a cost center, but, 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 but actually an advantage builder. Are That's you a, are, is that something that 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 we think is going? We're going to see more of that. Is that an opportunity for learning? I, in it this has moment? to be. I, I don't think we have a choice. So, you know, it, it is something where oftentimes we hear this seat at the table, and I don't even get involved in all, all of that. I think it is presenting that in a way where it's sharing sharing the story, one of learning, but learning for so long and and industry agnostic was seen as a product. Mm-hmm. It has products. But the value is the relationship and connection to what are we trying to do in this organization to move forward strategically, people engagement, retention of our high performers, well-being. Like the model has shifted. Well-being was way down the list for a long time, and now it's in the top three, as it should be. DEI keeps bouncing back and forth. And in my mind, that's not a pillar that is should be a part of the fabric of how we're even approaching anything that we're doing. And we keep separating out rather than seeing it as a a triad approach of we actually can't do these things if we're not working in sync. And I I think the other thing that's really interesting to me is it's really easy to go after the really shiny objects that are out there. We're in a 24 hour on world. There's a lot of products. There's a lot of tools. I don't care. I could care less about the tools from the standpoint of if you do not have a solid foundation and you do not have core tenets and principles built, whether that's in a learning structure or an operational, you really can't get good at those advanced things until you have consistency in some of the basic things. And learning is one of those where it's not like a chief nursing officer where holistically you go, oh, I know what they're responsible for. Those roles have been around for a long time. Learning I bet if I picked up 15 organizations, the titles, the work, how people view it, the expectations around that, radically different. That has what has hurt our industry because people have homegrown those to be whatever the organization needs and it's hurt the standard. And there's a lot of good standards there that have been around for a minute. It's whether or not you have leadership that helps to adopt that. And I think the other thing before I hand it over to my colleagues is, There's an even bigger thing with shifting the mindset with people who serve in people leadership roles. Succession planning, identifying one person and grooming them for five years is not reality. And so you have to look at this as talent pools and how strong is our bench strength and have we created opportunity. But on the flip side, just because we hand somebody an opportunity does not mean they're automatically awarded. They have to invest equally back into that. And so you have this constant tension of 
I need to be able to provide opportunities as an organization, but the individual who's opting into that also has to be invested. Yeah, I think, Scott, I'll tell a brief story that I think speaks to this. When I was a people leader in my former healthcare system, I had a, a colleague that reported to me who, you know, had come to me at some point and she said, you know, I, I really think I want to be a nurse. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget this story because um, I said to her, okay. I said, hold on one second. I picked up the phone and I called the cath lab manager and I said, hey, John, I'm sitting here with Christy and Christy is going to come on over. Can you give her a chance to just observe the team for a couple minutes? He said, absolutely. I sent Christy over and, uh, and the story is, you know, Christy went on to become a cath lab nurse. Mm. My colleagues, some of my colleagues, including some executives at the organization said to me, you know, you just encourage someone to take on a position and you're going to lose the position in your area now because we're not going to backfill that position. Mm. And I said to them at that time, I don't care because I'm helping her fulfill her purpose and her passion. And I'm okay with that. And we didn't get the backfilled position. And I didn't care. Um, and I made sure that I took on that additional work, not that anyone else on the team took it on. But I knew that it would be a benefit to her. She's still serving as a nurse today, serving across the country. She was a travel nurse during COVID. She's now settled down in a healthcare system. And she has found her absolute passion and her purpose. And when I look back on that story, I was a small part of it, but helped her achieve it. But we need to have leaders that are more committed than ever to thinking like that, in my opinion. This is truly a time for people-focused leaders in healthcare. And I think, obviously, you know, Hillary and Dr. Mitchell uh, are anomalies, in my opinion, within the work that they do. We need more of them. When you see more of them, you will see true career mobility, and you will also see a transformational uh, generation of the workforce. You know, I agree with both of you. A couple of months ago, one of the ladies in the cafeteria asked if I had a moment just to speak. And so I stepped out of line and she told me about this dream she had of becoming a nurse, but wasn't able to pursue it because of finances, etc. And I said to her, why, why are you talking in past tense? What happened to her? She's always oh, too late, too late. Like, it's never too late. I, in fact, I said to you, you never stop learning until the day you die. And so she says, well, I don't know where to start. And that's a part of it where people are overwhelmed with the amount of information. So I sat with her and we went through it step by step. She wants to do it part time because she has a family to take care of. But just being able to sit with her and help her map out the trajectory of what her career could look like at this organization, that's what it's about. You know, when you hand people something and say, well, you just work, you read through it and you work it out and, you know, make a decision, that's not helping them at all. You know, so it's, it's important to have those people within the organization that are willing to take that time and sit with another person and hear their dream and their passion and help them map out a pathway to fulfilling that dream. Yeah, we talk sometimes about uh, the challenges of, of building organizational culture. Again, this is this is across all industries, and and training managers to be able to have people centric conversations at all levels. 
I, I love these examples because what you're what you're telling me is is the manager's it shows a manager being empowered to have a conversation that might not benefit their team in the short term, but benefits the person that they're working with. Uh, you know, we call it a servant leadership perspective or whatever, whatever you want to call it. But what, what, we, what I think you're doing in those moments is you're building loyalty and a bond and, you know, a sense of safety and alignment with that person and, if you can do that throughout an organization, that can be, I think, very powerful. Well, Scott, I would add that happens at the department level. More often than not, people have this grandiose view of how an organization, culture's there, whether it's positive or negative, culture already exists. But I, I think people forget sometimes, and it's easy to do this when we talk about our big organizations or a hospital Um, culture is how I view my relationship with my manager and my teammates. That is very low on the totem pole in the grand scheme of an organization. And so when they respond on engagement surveys, how someone feels about an organization is typically how they feel about their department. And so you have to, that's the reality. That's the person's reality. You have to help people see this as, as a learning leader, I can help and coach and guide and our teams can help and coach and guide. But you have to take ultimate responsibility and ownership to drive that within your unit. That's your locus of control, where if we have that spread across, where every people leader is seeing that as this awesome and hard responsibility, right? Coaching doesn't come naturally. We often grow into that as we get into leadership. And But if we provide those tools and toolkits and tool belts to say, hey, here are all the things that you can use and you're not going to get it right, right out of the gate, but keep at it and you've got support systems to help you. On the flip side, removing people from those roles where it is not the right fit and we know that. So you equally have to have a radical candor approach. I'll steal Kim Scott's terminology there to be able to coach up and coach out because it isn't for everybody and that isn't the only way that you can grow. But Hillary, I think if there was more of that happening, we would break down that siloed, myopic view of, I am not going to help this person find the resources they need because then I'm going to lose them off the team, you know. But instead, think about not only that individual's growth, but the value they bring to the organization so the organization can fulfill its own mission, I think is so important if we could do that, if we could just break that resistance down. But you're right, it starts at the de- department level. Well, I want to uh, uh, think about, and, and I'll, I'll ask you each from your own perspectives as we sort of close up the, the conversation in this uh, today, to consider, or tell me a little about what you hope to see in your organization in the next two to five years. Uh, given the challenges and, and the and the the, the uh, you know the many challenges we've talked about, uh, where where do you hope to lead your teams, uh, and what do you think you'll be able to accomplish? And uh, Dr. Lamont, I'll I'll, I'll I'll start with you. Okay. All right. Oh my goodness! In two to five years, I hope that we embrace innovation. Hmm. I hope that we see failure is failing forward, that we fail quickly. And I hope that we are more proactive than reactive in terms of looking at what the needs are within healthcare and making sure 
that employee, employees in healthcare have the resources they need to continue performing at the height of their role. That's what I, I hope for. Like yesterday. I know you said in two years, but yesterday. <laughs> Understood. Jeffrey? Yeah. Uh, the first I would say is it, it's true. My true hope is that we'll see more human-centered leaders and human-centered decisions in healthcare. And that when it comes to workforce, we'll really be invested in our people and their hopes and desires. And that through that, we will get our desires as organizations also fulfilled. And I think part of that would be we will uh, redesign the workforce. We will really make sure that it is an equitable approach into it. Uh, we'll look at accreditation. We'll look at licensure. We'll make sure, to Hillary's point, that we can actually bring people into the workforce who have a heart and desire to serve, but who can't get in today because of a licensure or accreditation. But that with them in there, we'll have a stronger, more healthy, sustainable workforce that will continue to enable exceptional patient care in rural, suburban, and urban communities. Excellent. And Hillary, I think the last word might go to you. What a great group to follow on this. Oh, my gosh. So I second all of that. Um, and I would add that it is about focusing on alignment. So t so often we have to have consensus to do everything. No, get alignment on the ultimate goal and then be okay with disagreement on how we get there. That sometimes is so preventative in some of the work we do. The second piece I would leave with is grace. It doesn't matter how seasoned you are. Things are, are shape-shifting so quickly that nobody knows how to figure this out. So if we're working collectively together with alignment on a shared goal, regardless of what service area you're in, it is amazing how much gets done because the people side of the house is often the biggest barrier uh, because we don't communicate or we have mis, you know, misalignment in what we're thinking. So those are the things that outside of the actual work that needs to be done um, needs to happen in addition to that or it'll stall progress. Hillary Miller at Penn State Health, Jeffrey Roche at Siemens Health and Ears, and Dr. Lamata Mitchell at Advent Health. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed this conversation and I wish you all the best as you uh, take on everything that uh, the industry throws at you moving forward. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Thank you all. This has been the Axiom Insights Learning and Development Podcast. This podcast is a production of Axiom Learning Solutions. Axiom is a learning and development services firm with a network of learning professionals in the U.S. and worldwide, supporting L&D teams with learning staff augmentation and project support for instructional design, content management, content creation, and more, including training delivery and facilitation, both in-person and virtually. To learn more about how Axiom can help you and your team achieve your learning goals, visit axiomlearningsolutions.com. And thanks again for listening to the Axiom Insights Podcast.